You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In December of 2017, two real estate agents followed cleaners to a Toronto property that was expected to be empty. After showing an interested couple the upstairs, they then took the couple downstairs to see the indoor hot tub and lap pool. What they found there was unexpected and grisly, as they came across two bodies in the basement beside the pool. To date, this case has yet to be solved, and there seem to be very few answers as to what happened to two very wealthy philanthropists whose lives were cut short. Welcome to episode 13 of Gone But Never Forgotten, the case of Barry and Honey Sherman. Welcome to episode 13 of GBNF. In this week's episode, we're going to examine a perplexing case that is very recent, and if you're into true crime on any level, you are aware of it as it was and has been the cover story on many newspapers and magazines ever since. A twisting and turning story that has not yet found closure. Barry and Honey Sherman were extremely wealthy and seemed to spend most of their time trying to help as many people as they possibly could while they were alive. What could have possibly led to their untimely deaths? We will get into all of the details that we have available to us here shortly. First, I would like to again welcome my lovely wife and co-host Julie to the show. Hey Julie, how are you? How have you been? Hi Lance, I am good. How are you? I'm doing okay, you know, just in the doldrums of winter is coming and not in the good way like Game of Thrones, in the bad way like lots of snow to shovel and (laughs) depressing cold. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, I will say though, I always say that I'm excited for these episodes, but today especially because it is so close to home as uh, we both used to live in Toronto. So this is really, really interesting to me. Yeah, exactly. I think that in some ways this story hits close to home for both of us, simply because we both work in jobs that could potentially also have us one day walking into a situation like we'll find here today at the Sherman home. When you work for people, especially of the ilk of berry and honey, you undoubtedly develop a relationship with them. When you go to work, the last thing that you expect and wish to find is anyone that has passed away, especially in a situation like this one. So, without any further ado, let's learn about the lives and deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Barry Sherman was born into a Jewish family in Toronto on February 25th, 1942. His parents were Herbert Sherman and Sarah Sherman, nay Winter. 
Herbert worked as a business partner within a zipper company, and after his death, Sarah would find work as a physical therapist. Barry's grandparents on both sides had fled Russia and Poland and the persecution of the Jews in those countries. Sadly, Barry's dad passed away when he was only 10 years old. Barry Sherman was incredibly bright. While attending Forest Hill Collegiate in Toronto, he won a national physics contest and he graduated high school with top marks. He would then enter the University of Toronto in 1958 taking the engineering science program, starting at the age of 16, which was the youngest that anyone had ever taken the program at that time. When asked why he chose that program, Barry said that it was because it was reported to be the hardest program that was offered by the University of Toronto. During the summers when he was not studying, Barry worked for his uncle, Louis Lloyd Winter, at his pharmaceutical company, Empire Laboratories, which was Canada's largest wholly owned at the time. Barry worked as a driver, and when his uncle would travel, Barry would help oversee operations. In 1964, Barry graduated from U of T with the highest honors in his class. He would then enroll at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to begin his doctorate in engineering and he completed his PhD in astrophysics in 1967. Honey Reich was born in 1947 in a displaced persons camp in Austria and was the daughter of Polish Holocaust survivors. She earned an arts degree at the University of Toronto and an education degree from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. After she finished her degrees, she set her standards high and decided that she wanted to meet and marry a doctor. As such, she started to volunteer at Mount Sinai Hospital. In 1970, Honey would meet Barry. While he was not a medical doctor, he did use doctor in front of his name, which was given to him by his PhD. The first time that Barry showed up at the house for a date with Honey, her younger sister Mary recalls being very skeptical of Barry. While he waited for Honey, he had his nose buried into a newspaper, ignoring the rest of her family. Thus started a 47-year relationship and 46-year marriage as Barry and Honey Sherman would be married one year after they started dating. They would go on to have four children together, Jonathan, Lauren, Alexandra, and Kaylin. The first reaction by Honey's sister was definitely not one that was felt only by her. Barry and Honey were described by many as complete polar opposites, yin and yang, actually, if you will. Honey was a social butterfly and was incredibly outgoing. Barry, on the other hand, was a man who was driven by and completely overtaken at times by his work. Even when the family would go on vacation, the family would go out to explore, ski, and see everything that they could see. Barry, on the other hand, was much more apt to stay in and research, study, and go over business work and paperwork. Barry was always known as a very shrewd businessman and in fact was also known to be incredibly cutthroat. He was no stranger to making bold moves and moves that could potentially hurt others if it meant furthering his businesses and his wealth and the betterment of his immediate family in those regards. In fact, even before Barry met Honey, his strong business traits, often at the peril of others, would begin to show themselves. 
1967, Barry purchased Empire Laboratories from the executor of the estate of his uncle Louis Lloyd Winter and his wife Beverly. The couple had unfortunately died only 17 days apart in November of 1965 and also left behind four orphan children who were Barry's cousins. Empire had been the first company to secure the rights to distribute Valium in Canada, and they also held the rights to many well-known medications. Lewis Lloyd Winter's estate allowed for Empire to be purchased upon the deaths of himself and his wife, with the condition that their four children, Barry's cousins, would be able to work at Empire when they turned 21 years of age. They also needed to have the option to purchase a 5% stake in the company at the age of 23, with 15 years of royalties held for them for four of their patented products. The underwriting of the agreement stated that all of those conditions would be voided if Barry Sherman sold the company. You guessed it. In 1969, Barry voided those conditions. Of course. Barry put into practice a deal that would see himself and Empire's largest customer swap shares, thus putting the company into the control of the other company. Then, in January of 1972, Barry and Ulster Limited, the company with the controlling stake in Empire, would sell the company and thus cancel everything that would have been left owing to the four children of Lewis and Beverly, and leaving them out of the promised employment and money and options that were to be made available to them. It's like you said, he's so bright. He's so bright, found a way around it. Well, and it's crazy because like when I was doing the research, it was like, wow, these poor kids. And then it was only near the end of my research that I actually read that this was his uncle and his cousins. So I was like... It was bad enough that, like, he was like, eh, to, like, four kids. Yeah. But he did this to his own family. It's your own family. That's right. It would become clear early and often that Barry was driven by business and money and even refrained from spending money on himself whenever possible. Even as he grew in business and he was worth millions and then billions of dollars, Barry would do things like drive cars until they physically could not drive any longer, rather than spending money on new vehicles. For his 50th birthday, Honey even gave him a red sports car with a bow on it in front of friends and family, and Barry demanded that she return it, which she did. The Shermans would continue to be known as two very different people throughout their lifetimes. They would both be known as being philanthropists, especially Honey, but on the flip side, Barry was seen by others as a downright monster. People would come to know Barry as a man who had, quote, no redeeming qualities, unquote. Many would even say that Apotex, the company that Barry was head of, was gouging Canadians with their prices for generic drugs. University of Ottawa professor Amir Ataran was quoted as saying, Canadians pay more for generic drugs than almost every other country. He sought to manipulate our system to enrich himself and impoverished Canadian patients who use his drugs. Barry would become known for two things, really. His work in the pharmaceutical world and the fact that he would go out of his way to write things if he determined that he had been wronged. Barry was far from a stranger to courtrooms as he sued and Apotex, his company, sued companies, governments, 
contractors, and anyone and anything that stood in his path. I'll make the sidebar of saying he even later did sue uh, his cousins when they tried to get some restitution from him, so even family was not off-limits. He even was incredibly political and would support any political party and any politician that he deemed would look out for him, his company, and his wallet and well-being. Even taking fire in 2006 for backing Joe Volpe's bid for liberal leadership when Apotex gave $108,000 to his campaign. Now, there is a limit in Canada. I believe it's $5,400 per person for a campaign. And for that $108,000, some of those donations um, were a bit of a problem for many because they were coming from minor children. Wow. This guy seems like there could be a whole host of people that wanted to have him dead. Yes, and I think that this is in part why this crime has gone unsolved to this day. It seems like Barry was a great man if he was on your side, but hell hath no fury like Barry if he believed that you had or would scorn him. You know, I think that this is something that a lot of politicians or big businessmen and wealthy people in general have in common to some extent or another. Sad, but true. And also something that I couldn't help thinking about as I read about their life and about their death and the whole case is it's like, not only when you're rich, you piss off rich people, but those rich people know people who could potentially come and do a deed like having you murdered. So, I mean, there's so many different directions that you could go with this case. That's true. Um, I feel like we've focused enough on Barry and Honey and who they were. Um, So let's get into the reason why we're all here today. Let's talk about the mystery and the unsolved murder that makes this an episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. You got it. Let's get on track. In 2017, the Shermans made the decision that they wanted to move from their longtime home on Old Colony Road in North York to Forest Hill, which was a much closer to downtown and much closer to their friends and business associates who lived in the area. As anyone from the Toronto area can attest, getting across Toronto can be a harrowing task, and as Barry and Honey were getting older, they saw a great deal of benefit in having to travel at least a little bit less. Honey purchased a corner lot in Forest Hill, and they made plans to demolish the house that was sitting already on the property. The house that the couple was looking to build was 16,000 square feet with features including a central swimming pool, a 41-foot retractable skylight, and living quarters for their staff. Wow, sounds like an elaborate house. Can we go there? Yeah, yeah, no. It definitely was an elaborate house though. There were 15 variances that needed to be approved by the city, including the fact that the house would be 156 feet feet deep, which is more than twice what is allowed in Toronto without permission. Can I just say, can you imagine if your basement went 156 feet into the ground? Like what could you possibly need that much depth for? (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess that's true. On December 14th, Barry and Honey met at Apotex headquarters late in the afternoon, and they were going over some design changes that were up for the new house. Honey was leaving for Miami in a few days for vacation, and Barry was set to join her about a week later. This meeting at Apotex would be the last time that the two would be seen alive. 
That evening, when Barry and Honey returned home to North York, Barry sent a routine email out to his staff, and staff recalled being stunned when there were no more emails from Barry that night, as he had a terrible struggle with insomnia and would often stay up late into the night sending emails and correspondences. The following day, December 14th, Barry did not show up at the office, and it was noted that this was not normal for him. On December 15th, with neither Barry nor Honey expected at home in the morning, the cleaning staff let themselves into the Sherman house using a lockbox. Not long after that, two real estate agents showed up with a couple that was interested in buying the Sherman home, which was listed for roughly $7 million. After showing the couple around the main floor of the house, they went downstairs to show them the lap pool and hot tub. This is where the couple was discovered. Barry and Honey's lifeless bodies were found beside the pool. Both of their necks were tied with leather belts to a metal railing slightly more than a meter above the pool. Barry was seated, legs crossed on the pool deck, and Honey was on her side with a bruise on her face. Coats were pulled down over their shoulders, restraining their arms, and they were both facing away from the water, fully closed. The police, of course, were called not long after, and the deaths were immediately looked at as suspicious, and the Toronto Police Service's homicide unit did take the lead on the case because it was the division that dealt the most with unexpected and sudden deaths. However, the first word that came from the police was that they were operating as though they were dealing with a murder-suicide. They believed that there was no signs of forced entry, and their investigation was not including looking into any suspects. What was weird about that was that even though not always the case, often there are notes or a note left behind in a murder-suicide. And in this case, there was nothing of the sort. Correct. Usually there is some sign of a motive when you look at a murder-suicide in some way, shape, or form, and even though most would say that Barry and Honey were, as we mentioned, polar opposites in most respects, it was not expected that either one of them wanted the other one out of their lives or especially dead. That's right. The first set of post-mortem examinations came back, and as suspected, the cause of death for both Barry and Honey was indeed ligature neck compression. What that means is ligature strangulation caused by binding or tying. Needless to say, this whole idea of murder-suicide did not sit well with the family or friends of the Shermans. Friends noted that their property had nine entrances to it, and they also noted that Barry and Honey would likely have allowed anyone into the house if they appeared to be in any kind of distress. Even though there was not a sign of forced entrance, it was noted that neither one of the Shermans was the type of person to turn away even a complete stranger if they needed help. Barry and Honey's children also issued a statement urging the Toronto police to do a complete and thorough criminal investigation into the deaths and said that the police were essentially copping out by fronting the murder-suicide story on the media. The family reached out to prominent Toronto lawyer Brian Greenspan to retain a private investigator to look into the deaths. He in turn hired Tom Klett, a retired police officer who had worked in drugs, intelligence, and homicide. Further to all of that, they also privately hired Dr. David Chasen, who was retired, but previously had been the chief forensic pathologist for Ontario. He was hired to conduct a second autopsy. That second autopsy, 
determined that Barry and Honey had, in fact, both been murdered. From here, things get messy. Obviously, when you have the Toronto police working a case and you are simultaneously have a second private team working the case, you are apt to get messages that are conflicting. In January of 2018, the Toronto Star published an article that was based on anonymous sources from within the private team of investigators. These anonymous tips stated that Barry and Honey's deaths were unequivocally murders because the couple had been strangled by the belts after their hands had been tied. The problem with this was that the private investigators had in fact not yet been allowed on the premises of the Sherman home and site of their murders. When contacted by a reporter in regards to these tips, the Toronto Police Services reiterated that they were treating the two deaths as suspicious. Finally, on January 26th of 2018, the Toronto Police Services did advise the media that Barry and Honey had in fact been murdered in a targeted attack. In late 2018, Brian Greenspan announced that the family had offered a $10 million reward for anyone who provided information or evidence that led to an arrest and prosecution of a suspect. Greenspan also took the opportunity to take shots at the Toronto police, stating that they had failed to collect important evidence nearly a year after the deaths. The team of private investigators came to multiple conclusions of their own when they closed their investigation. They deemed that because of ligature marks on Barry and Honey's wrists, they had been bound before they were hanged. They also believed that Honey had fought back against her attackers as she had cuts on her lip and nose, and she had been sitting in a pool of her own blood when she was found. However, the clothing on her body did not have evidence of the amount of blood that would have been present if she had been in a sitting position the entire time. As such, the investigators believed that she had been left lying face down on the pool deck for some time before she was bound in that upright position. To date, the case is still wide open for all intents and purposes by the Toronto Police. The interesting thing here is that the police have said that they have a working knowledge of what happened in this case and a suspect. But now, two years after saying those things, nothing has come to fruition. In the time since, the house has now been demolished and the pool filled in and the lot lies vacant. The case lies seemingly dormant also and somewhere a guilty party or likely guilty parties walk free after murdering two people. At the time of their deaths, Barry and Honey Sherman were listed as being worth $4.77 billion. Barry was listed as the 12th richest Canadian and the 163rd richest person in the world. Many even believe that they were worth far more than that. Honey Sherman had donated an estimated $50 million to the United Jewish Appeal, and the couple had donated tens of millions of dollars to Jewish organizations, universities, and hospitals. Honey was on the board for Baycrest and York University. She also served on the boards for Mount Sinai's Women's Auxiliary, the International American Joint Distribution Community, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Love or hate how Barry conducted himself within the business world, and even with family and friends at times, he was shrewd, but he was also incredibly giving of his money, something that we can only wish other wealthy people would be. 
They were obviously very well known within the upper echelon of society. When their deaths were made public, Justin Trudeau took to Twitter stating, and I quote, our condolences to their family and their friends and to everyone touched by their vision and spirit, unquote. John Tory, the mayor of Toronto at the time, said that he was shocked and heartbroken to hear of their deaths as they had made incredibly large contributions to the city of Toronto. Former Ontario Premier Bob Ray said, quote, They were extremely successful in business, but also very, very giving people. It's going to be a very, very big loss, unquote. One thing that sticks out to me here is that this is not the first, nor will it be the last time, that someone was killed because of either money, position, or power. I feel like one or all three of these things were part of the motive here. Oftentimes the people that do the hardest work and make the most money are also the people that fight the hardest to keep their work and their money, and why wouldn't they? However, the harsh reality is that when you live like that, there are people, as I said earlier, who will always be jealous of you, and there are a lot of enemies that are left in the wake of things like purchases, sales, court cases, and litigation. That is clearly the case with Barry Sherman, and that is clearly a part of the puzzle here. Being rich and protective of the things that make one rich, though, does not mean that that person doesn't deserve to continue to live, obviously. As much as Barry may have been seen as somewhat of an asshole to many, he and his wife did so much for so many lives while they were here on this earth. And there is definitely a sense of sadness, even to those of us that obviously did not know them. What do you think of this case, Julie? This is kind of like a weird one for me because I feel like it has to be somewhat of a personal vendetta just because with everything that we've read and everything we've researched, it's they left the bodies somewhere that would obviously be found, you know? So it has to be so, like, like a message of vengeance or something. Yeah. <clears throat> one of the things that kind of stuck out to me, and I actually left it out of the story, but I guess I'll mention it here. Um, in the same room that they were left um, bound to the, to the posts mm -hmm. there, um, there was gifts that were given to them, which were two statues that were made out of junk. The junk statues is what they're called. Mm -hmm. yep. And a lot of people say that Barry and Honey were positioned in such a way to mimic um, those junk st statues, which is an interesting piece of information. But for me, I was kind of like, I left it out because I don't feel like it's entirely factual because everything I read about it said... Barry was sitting sitting the same way that one of the statues was, with his legs crossed over mm -hmm. each other. But Honey wasn't. Like, Honey, yeah. Honey's legs were out in front of her, so they weren't actually positioned like the statues. So I feel like... I left it out because I just felt like maybe it was one of those things that was thrown on. Someone was like, well, that's kind of weird. And it is kind of weird. Yeah. But, yeah. like, those statues were given to them many, many years ago. And sure, maybe someone thought it was like a funny ha-ha at the end. But if you're going to actually position bodies to mimic something, you're going to position them both. So I think yeah. for me, I felt like it was more of a fluke. But Well, I mean, it could, it could like you said, it could be on purpose. could have been totally like a coincidence, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I definitely, 
this one is weird because they got like even stuff like that it's just weird little things you know and like you said when it comes to power and money and influence on people and and things in the community you just never know what else he had his hand in you know yeah and like i mean i don't know i guess you know and i guess some of our listeners are starting to learn that like i'm not entirely trusting of police and of all of this kind of stuff and i guess you could almost say i'm kind of a conspiracy theorist i just feel like if you find two prominent people deceased in their basement i feel like maybe you're gonna be along the lines of you know not starting out with murder suicide but Mm -hmm. then there's me it's like someone that had enough money went to the police and said like just close this case would the police listen yeah you know like there's so many different things when you're dealing with a billionaire oh yeah but also also we we also don't know what the police knows right like we as the public never get to know all the information so i'm not saying that it was right or wrong that they they said it was a murder suicide when i mean i don't think it is but we also don't know what information they had at that time before anyone else in the public knew yeah and it's true enough and i mean i guess i'll get a little bit more into one other thing i didn't really dive into which kind of i understand why murder suicide was looked at so we kind of glossed on it honey had um i guess you would call them superficial wounds to her face Mm -hmm. which you know led them to believe that there she fought back and barry didn't yeah so when you look at just that and even um the first the first set of like testing and looking at the body and stuff on the autopsy they didn't really mention the ligature marks on the arms mm-hmm. on on the wrists that showed that they'd been tied previously yeah. so there is definitely some evidence there that would like, make you think like why did the man not fight back but the wife did yeah but if they were both bound that kind of throws the whole murder suicide thing out the window because like yeah. why are you going to bind your own wrists to yeah. long enough yeah. to leave marks you know yeah it's definitely weird So I guess I'll end with an appeal. Let's finish this story. Unlike some of these episodes that are so far in the past, this one is still very fresh. It may be that we don't ever get that conclusion, but I feel like it's likely that some very professional people that were either hired or completed this double murder are behind it. That doesn't mean that they cannot or will not be caught. What I do find suspicious, though, is that in years since the murder, and even years since the police announced that they felt that they had a much clearer picture, nothing's happened. I guess when you have a lot of enemies, and likely enemies with a lot of money, it's much easier to have things covered up. The old saying is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I think that that's enough said in this case. If you're out there, and you happen to be listening to the sound of my voice, and you either were a part of this double murder, or you know who was, reach out to someone and tell them what you did or tell them what you know. It's true. It doesn't matter why you think that murder is justified. It is not. Two people had done a lot in their lives are no longer with us. Their lives were ended at the age of 70 and 76 and their work and their kindness cannot be undersold, regardless of what anyone thought about certain business practices. Left behind were children, grandchildren, and countless friends and family who deserve to know what happened to the Shermans. Hopefully, we get to do a follow-up episode on this case with some closure in the very near future. Amen to that. Let's get some justice for the Sherman family. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. 
please feel free to contact us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email if you just want to talk about cases, your likes or dislikes about the podcast, or anything. We love interacting with our fans. That's right. We love interacting with you guys, and it makes us so happy when you reach out. Um, just a reminder that we are an independent podcast, so if you'd like to help us out, we have four different tiers on Patreon at patreon.com slash GBNF podcast. We just ordered stickers. Yes, we did. And they're coming within the next two weeks. And let me tell you, they are awesome. So you can get yours by joining one of our tiers on Patreon. I think the only thing that's left to say then is thank you. Thank you for listening to us and thank you for supporting Gone, but, but never, never forgotten. forgotten.